Hey, Julie here. We would love to hear what you think about the podcast. What issues would you like to see us dig into? Are there perspectives you wish you could hear more of? Is there something really inspiring going on in your community that we could highlight? Find us on social media. We are at Top of Mind Pod, or you can send an email to topofmind at byu.edu. Okay, now for this week's episode, we're bringing you a special peek at another podcast over here at BYU Radio I think you're going to enjoy. It's called Constant Wonder, and the title kind of says it all. They're all about exploring the hidden marvels of the world and leaning into those moments where your jaw just drops and you're in awe. In this episode of Constant Wonder, you're going to hear the amazing tale of how an orphaned baby orca found its way home. I had a dream that I went down to a beach, and at this beach, there had just been a big storm, and there was a lot of flotsam and jetsam, like kelp and things that had come up from the very bottom of the sea were strewn along the shoreline. And I was really attracted to go poke around in the kelp and see what, what the storm had pulled up. But I knew there was something I was supposed to see further on down the beach. So I went up over the sand dune, and there was a bay with about 80 orcas. And when I got there, this mother orca had been waiting for me, and she breached. She was just beautiful, kind of shimmering in the sun. And I could have just watched her all day, but she was actually pointing the way for me to go further on down the beach. So I I went up over another sand dune, and I came to another bay, and there was a long concrete box on the beach. So I went running down to the box to see what it was, and there was a tiny window along the box. And as I looked in the box, I was kind of horrified to realize that her baby was in the box. And it was so tightly pressed up against the walls of the box and against this window that that its skin was pressed right against this window. And it was important that I make eye contact. In the dream, I knew that I had to make eye contact with her baby. So I went running along this window until I met the baby in the eye. And when I looked the baby in the eye, I was overwhelmed with the despair it was feeling, the sheer fear and terror and despair. And so I woke up and I was crying at having felt what this baby was feeling. And I was completely mystified what the dream meant. Meet Donna Sandstrom. It just so happens that Donna is the kind of person who reflects carefully on her dreams. She writes dreams down and has been doing this from her days as a student at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Our instructor had us keep a dream journal as part of a class, and that turned out to be one of the best habits and the best gifts of my life to that he helped get us trained in the practice of writing down our dreams and, and paying attention to them. That baby orca she looked in the eye It turns out that wasn't the first dream Donna had had about orcas. But having dreams about them was a fairly recent development for her. You could say that they came serially, and they started coming after she moved to Seattle in the early 1990s. 
you know, growing up near the ocean, as I'm sure you know, everyone likes whales and dolphins, and you get excited about them. But for me, they weren't really a passion until I moved to Seattle, and I started dreaming about them. I started having these very very intense dreams about them and about orcas specifically where do, where did the dreams come from i still couldn't answer that question none of those dreams were nightmares were they no uh they were just um no they were just very interesting um kind of very matter of fact meeting the orcas in the dreams just felt quite uh, natural like they were people i knew they were orcas but they were they were, that's all I can say is it just felt quite natural. I will say that, that I read, as I mentioned, I read the book Orca the Whale Called Killer, and the writer Eric Hoyt, he describes having a few dreams about orcas. And understanding that he, who had just written this, what is still the gold standard of books about orcas, that he mentioned his dreams was hugely significant for me because it legitimized my dreams, and it, made, it it legitimized my taking them seriously for me. It made me feel like something was going on, at the very least, to pay attention. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Donna Sandstrom herself is worth paying attention to, and frankly, she has earned my admiration. Donna is author of Orca Rescue, the true story of an orphaned orca named Springer. Springer, that orphaned whale, is something like a protagonist in this story, but you'll soon see there are others who vie for that distinction. The people who discovered Springer spoke out in her behalf, rescued her, nursed her back to health, matched her with her family, her pod of origin. But none of that has happened quite yet, as Donna is introducing us to this story. At this point, Donna doesn't even know what her dream was about. She's awake, writing the details down in a journal. Everything you've heard her describe so far, from the flotsam on the shore, to that mother whale breaching, to the baby orca wedged into a box with a window revealing its eye. What's clear so far is that Donna has every confidence that none of this is just random dreaming. It probably means something. I I ran through all the things as you do, like, well, was some part of me trapped? was a child I knew trapped. I worried about my niece or my nephew. And then that day, that same day in the paper, the Seattle Times published an article saying that SeaWorld had just been granted a permit to capture orcas off the coast of Alaska. So that was the moment everything changed because the dream was so clear. This mother whale showing me her baby in this concrete box And then later that same day, reading this announcement about SeaWorld getting a permit to capture 100 orcas off the coast of Alaska, I had no sensitivity to any of those issues prior to that dream. And so I felt like I got a very clear phone call for help, and I decided I had to act on it. So I reached out to Greenpeace, who was a local organization kind of spearheading efforts to help get those captures stopped. And I I wrote my first letter to the editor of the paper, you know, wondering why orcas were still being captured. And they printed my letter, and when they printed it, they printed it with a picture of a breaching orca, <laughs> which was very reminiscent of part of my dream. That actually is is when when everything changed because I acted on the dream. You have this dream, 
you're already in the habit of writing down your dreams because of your experience back in school. Did you write this one down? Did it? And if you did, did you do it before that newspaper report came out? Oh yes, I wrote down the dream um, because it was it was so striking. You know, when a dream wakes you up, I, for whatever reason, uh, whether it's a nightmare or anything, but I think the dreams that wake you up are the ones especially they pay attention to. So that one had woken me up, and I actually remember going to the dictionary. You know, this was before we had the Internet, of course, so I looked up, you know, killer whales in the dictionary. I, I really, I knew, in fact, the very first dream I had about whales here, I was looking at whales over the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and I didn't know what the Strait of Juan de Fuca was. I had just moved here, so I had to look that up, too. So it was all very new to me. It was a very new landscape, and the issues were new. I recently went back and found, I went back through the Seattle Times archives and found that article that I had read um, all these years later. The 1960s and 70s were quite an era for orca captures. Back then, compared to what biologists know today, precious little was understood about orca life, their culture, social behavior, or their actual requirements for health and well-being. Fifty-some years down the road now, we can accurately describe these mammals as complex, highly intelligent, extremely social, and deserving of immense respect. But within my own memory, we thought little or nothing of snatching a baby to ship it off to SeaWorld, where the price of admission hardly seemed exorbitant for what we got in return. A grand show, with a trainer using a shrill whistle to call a killer whale out onto the large pool deck, make it lift its flukes and head on command in front of bleachers filled with spectators like me, who sometimes got drenched whenever Shamu shot out of the water and came crashing back down amid various circus flips and tricks. We were naive. Today, we can hardly look back at that era without a painful wince. Donna Sandstrom spells out some orca facts we know today. Over time, Mike Biggs, a a Canadian researcher, figured out how to tell orcas apart from their saddle patches and their dorsal fins. So every orca has a white blotch behind its dorsal fins. It's like a fingerprint on a human. It's unique to those orcas. When they could recognize individuals, then they could recognize that some individuals always were together. And then over time, we got to witness births, too. So this understanding of orca culture grew and Resident orcas are certainly one of the most tightly bonded family units on Earth. Sons and daughters stay with their mothers their whole lives. They don't break off and form a group of their own. They stay with their mothers, who stays with her mother, who stays with her mother. So in resident orca pods, you can have four, sometimes five generations traveling together. As people began to realize that orcas have powerful family bonds, the very idea of kidnapping a baby from its pod, from its mother, grandmother, possibly even from its great-grandmother, it just became increasingly unthinkable. And because of those identifying features called saddle patches, killer whales, orcas, came to be seen not just as families, but also as individuals who could be identified from a distance. What these photo identification studies showed was that there were two main distinct populations. There's a group that lives mostly around the north end of Vancouver Island and along the central British Columbia coast. Those are the northern residents. North and south is a reference to Vancouver Island, basically. And then there are three pods that live around the south end of Vancouver Island and along the Pacific coast 
in fact, as far south as Monterey, California, and those are the southern residents. And they sometimes pass through the same areas. They overlap in some of the physical places they travel, but they really interesting. They're very culturally the same. They have these long-lived family groups. Their travel patterns are predictable and known generally. And they have a, a dialects. They, each pod has a significant call so that, that whales share certain calls only with their pods so you can recognize them by their calls. And it's the southern residents that are most specifically endangered these days? Yes. It's the southern residents we're so worried about. They, um, you know, they were heavily impacted by the captures, but their population increased after the captures stopped to a high of nearly 100 animals um, in 1998. And then year after year, they started dying in greater numbers and younger than they should, to the point that they were listed as endangered in 2005. Sorry to say that decline continues. So now there's only uh, 73 orcas between the three pods, JK and L pods. Every pod has its own dialect, says Donna. That's a fact that's going to play a key role in our rescue story about the lost baby orca named Springer. You can't pull off a successful animal rescue operation unless you have knowledge of an animal's actual needs. Where does this animal really belong? Will it be accepted by any orca population anywhere? And of course, you've got to think through the basic dietary considerations too. One really intriguing thing is that while northern southern residents are very alike culturally, they're completely genetically distinct. They don't breed with each other. The genetics of the southern residents have more in common with the offshore orcas, which are groups that kind of live in the deep ocean. That's quite interesting, I think, that they live in these same areas and have a very similar culture, but are genetically distinct. There are other kinds of orcas, too. There are um, called transient or bigs orcas that eat marine mammals. That's one of the most fascinating things that I think about orcas, period, is that even though they're the top predator of the sea, they hunt strategically and they work together to catch their prey. They could take down anything in the sea, but what they eat and how they hunt is completely cultural. So our orcas, the resident orcas here, evolved perfectly for eons to hunt salmon, and Chinook salmon especially, while around the world other orcas are specialized for other things like seals. They, they learn how to hunt seals that come ashore in Patagonia, or they wash seals off ice floes down in Antarctica, or they flip great white sharks off the Farallons in California. I think it's super fascinating how much of who they are is cultural. Mammalian societies with distinct subgroups or communities, further divided into pods or families with dialects. And then, of course, you have the individuals. So here's something we need to think about. When we talk about a group, we tend to generalize. When we talk about solitary individuals, we start to differentiate by looking for individual traits. And once you go there, getting to know just one animal in its particularities it's going to be a temptation to project human attributes onto this non-human creature, even a lost, endangered baby whale. And I'm not so sure that's entirely flawed, you know, to anthropomorphize just a little. After all, it's probably a good thing to try on a little empathy for size. 
So now it's time to hear Springer's rescue story. She was first sighted near Seattle. It was a quartermaster on the Vashon Ferry who first noticed the whale by herself. Orcas are terrifically bonded to their families. You just don't see an orca by itself. The quartermaster called a local researcher, Mark Sears, and Mark Sears also was puzzled because in 40 years of watching whales here, he'd never come across a lone orca. But he went to check it out and confirmed exactly what the quartermaster had reported, that there was a, a juvenile orca. Orcas and all cetaceans have pretty good eyesight. They will actually stick their heads up and, and take a look. She turned over so that he could see from her markings that it was a juvenile female orca. This orca couldn't be identified by her saddle patch. You know, we talked about that um, orcas each have this unique mark with an identifier that tell, basically tells who they are. And on this little whale, her skin was really mottled, so you couldn't see her saddle patch. So it was a mystery, who is this whale? After Mark confirmed that she was out there and that it was impossible to tell who she was, he reached out to researchers all over um, and researchers you know from NOAA Fisheries and Canada you know other a lot of people came down to try to figure out who this whale was and she had this very endearing and turned out to be a very useful habit that she really liked playing with sticks so Mark actually picked up one of the sticks that she'd been playing with it was about I think he says it was about six feet long a pretty long stick but he tied it to his boat so that you know, if there was a researcher or a veterinarian, someone who needed to get a close look, he would pick up that stick and she would see it and come over to the boat. Uh, he got the specific permission from NOAA Fisheries to do that. Anyway, Mark, Mark would go out every day and just uh, lay eyes on her to see if she was there and if she was doing okay. Of course, everyone was afraid she might be sick or something, so it was important just to monitor her every day. And I went out one day with him just to see where she was and take notes of her behavior and things like that. And yeah, I picked up a stick. It wasn't her big stick, it was just a floating stick and we hadn't spotted her yet. She spotted us though and she, she came charging towards the boat when I had that stick in my hand. All those scientific findings gathered since the days of orca snatching, well, here's where they come into play in a big way. Researchers consulted their charts, you could call them whale family trees, to deduce the precise pod that this lost whale almost certainly came from, and they could postulate who her mother was, most likely a female known to have given birth two years previously, but now deceased. The missing baby, numbered A73, had been named Springer after Springer Point in Johnstone Bay, British Columbia. And the rescuers were worried now that an orphaned whale conditioned to play with a stick held by people in boats, might routinely start looking for food, family, and comfort from the wrong sources, might have become habituated to humans. But limiting all human contact was no longer possible because she was sick and needed medical attention. As I mentioned, the biggest and most noticeable thing was her skin condition. It was kind of blotchy. Mark tells it that she was always rubbing up against sticks because it seemed very itchy. It seemed to him like she was always get, trying to scratch an itch, probably from her skin condition. She was also underweight, not severely, but enough so that it was worrisome. She had a little bit of a depression behind her blowhole, and that can sometimes, that can get really exacerbated. If whales are starving, that gets very pronounced, that depression. Sometimes she had mucus in her blow, so... She wasn't exactly thriving, but also 
she she did have energy. And the most amazing thing is she was capturing fish on her own. Normally, orcas work together to hunt their prey, and they also share their prey. Her mother at that age would have been sharing her fish with her, so it was kind of amazing that she was able to to hunt on her own. Um, So she was seen hunting. Everyone knew she was catching fish and eating it, but she didn't seem to be getting enough. She was too skinny. With hindsight, it's pretty obvious what the right intervention needed to be. But at the time, it wasn't clear at all. Some said let nature take its course. Others advocated a more hands-on approach. If Springer ended up in an aquarium, would that be better or worse than nothing? And sick as she was, maybe her days in the wild were numbered anyway. Donna Sandstrom found herself on one side of the issue in a very public debate that involved multiple interested parties and government agencies. We strongly advocated that Springer should have a chance to go home, to be reunited with her family. We were wary of any plan that would involve her being sent to an aquarium for either temporary rehabilitation or worse, permanently. When orcas go to aquariums, they don't come out. So we were uh, very worried that she would be sent to an aquarium. And even if the plan was to rehabilitate her and send her back to her pod, that that wouldn't actually happen. So Donna and others tried to prevail on NOAA to attempt a reunification. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It turns out to be the U.S. federal agency charged with oversight of whales. Who knew? Now, all of this was going down in 2002, and you might remember that orcas were on a lot of minds at that time. The hit film Free Willy had come out a few years earlier, and a campaign had been launched to rescue and then free the actor that played Willie, a captive orca named Keiko. Keiko was finally released into the wild in July 2002, just four months before Springer suddenly showed up. Keiko's story did not end especially well, but still, Donna Sandstrom thinks it was probably a valuable exercise. The biggest thing Keiko had working against him was the people who were doing this project didn't know who his family was. And I think everyone hoped that he would just bond with or get adopted by local orcas, and that just didn't happen. So he eventually ended up still seeking out people for company, and he eventually settled in a, near a small village in Norway, and he kind of languished there and eventually died. So it wasn't the reunion with his own family or with any orcas that, that I think would have helped it have a happier ending. But... He did have a chance at freedom. He lived a life outside the aquarium, and he, he got the best that everyone knew to do at the time. I, I wouldn't call it a failure by any means. I would just say it was a step in our evolution of understanding orcas. Against this backdrop, Springer's fate was still up in the air. Days went by, weeks turned to months, agencies and advocates debated. She grew thinner, didn't look healthy. Some were worried she might even have genetic illnesses. Kids from nearby communities got involved in the public hearings. And the upshot? Noah decided to attempt a reunion to get Springer back to her home in the wild. We're going to hear more from Donna in a moment, but first I want to introduce you to a very important voice in this story. After Noah made its decision, one of the first phone calls went out to a marine mammal veterinarian named Pete Schrader. They wanted him to get a sample of Springer's blood. I want to know how you do that with a whale. As soon as the boat was near her, she would come to it, and she would stay there as long as they rubbed 
on her with what became well known as the stick. So that's what we did. We did that on May 8th, and we, we had such good luck, we got more blood. And just to make sure, we did it again uh, two days later. So not only did it not bother her to, you know, and drive her away, but it's a blood sample that we got another complete blood sample and were able to do the blood work that I had been used to doing and, and all of our human doctors are used to doing. So when I go to have blood drawn, the phlebotomist looks at me and says, oh, that's a good vein. Uh, do, you look, <laughs> do you look for a good vein on, on an orca? You can't see the veins. You can feel them. On the flukes especially, there's a depression. And, of course, they've got big vessels. You can run your hand across that and your finger. On the fluke, there's the two sides, top and bottom. And so there's four places back there and then a little ways up the peduncle. And then on the flippers. Pete Schrader is a lifelong veterinarian with specialization in marine mammals. Over his career, he's worked for the U.S. Navy for aquaria like SeaWorld in San Diego. He's been just about everywhere and done just about everything, including helping with otter rescues. That happened after the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska. Actually, one of his most remarkable assignments was caring for Navy dolphins during the Vietnam War. Don't take a cue here for Navy dolphins from Navy SEALs. These dolphins are dolphins with blubber and blowholes. And these dolphins were trained to find an enemy mine, swim over to place a countermine on it, and then swim safely away before everything detonated. His job was to take care of these dolphins. But the blood draw from Springer, that came many years later for Dr. Pete. And the result of those blood draws, very promising. She had no systemic problems that would doom her. Apparently, all she needed was to load up with calories and get dewormed and also minimal human contact to avoid habituation. During these very same months, another stray orca by the name of Luna had become habituated to people. Things ultimately did not end well for that animal. In 2006, Luna was fatally injured by a boat propeller. Springer's rescuers were intent on avoiding these kinds of big risks. Getting chummy with her was out of the question, so only one person was allowed to see her regularly, her vet. And even he mostly monitored her using remote cameras. As soon as she was captured, she was put into a large and deep pen, and we had a visual barrier around that pen, and we fed her through a 30-foot-long tube. So she very rarely saw humans at all. I was the one person that could look over the edge at her, and did. I had a, a trailer that I took down there and lived in because my home is uh, an hour and a half from where Springer was uh, in her rehab pen. So I was close by and we tried to decondition her from, from Puget Sound and to recondition her or condition her to stay away from people and to stop soliciting small boats. So a reward is the secret and we would... Uh, she would get a reward and not see people, not see where the re reward came from. But as soon as we put the live fish in the PVC pipe that went from where the live fish were to uh, where she could get them, she probably within a day or two learned that as soon as she heard flapping noise through that pipe, she'd station herself near it. And she'd catch the fish as it came out of the tube, about five, six pound salmon, and play with it until she finally 
decided it's time to swallow this, and then you'd hear crack snapple, you know, just like Rice Krispies. Malnourished as she was, she ate voraciously, but she was also dehydrated. I've got to tell you, honestly, it had never occurred to me before that a whale could suffer from dehydration. I'm wiser now. Cetaceans get water from the food they metabolize, not the water around them. It's salty. Pete found it necessary to supplement her salmon diet with fresh water administered through a tube and spiked with a dewormer. Pete gets credit for the first ever deworming of a wild orca. Now, in the middle of all of this, one of his scariest moments came when, when Pete took a day off, came back to find out that the people left in charge had decided, erroneously, that if a little salmon is good, a lot must be better. The pens had been filled with live fish that had been captured by the, uh, the Indian fishery up there. And, of course, they were glad to see her. They said, well, we'll really give her as much as she can eat. She had been held to 60 pounds a day. After she was treated for dehydration and worms and, and skin problems, uh, she started eating 60 pounds a day, had not eaten over five pounds a day before that. So one time while she was there for the month, she got a bellyache. I left my trailer in the pen, went home for a day's break, came back, and she was exhibiting all the signs of a bellyache. And I was highly concerned and asked the guys what was going on. And, well, Doc, she looks so good and looks so hungry, we fed her 100 pounds of food. So, so she got over that bellyache. Oh, oh, that was the night I was up all night with her. Dr. Pete's patient was beginning to thrive. Springer was gaining weight. Actually, though, time was running out for getting her back on her feet. That's just an expression. The rescuers sensed this ticking clock because in a couple of weeks, that whale family of hers was due to arrive in Johnstone Strait off Canada's Vancouver Island. And if this orphan whale was to be returned to her family, this would be the time. How do you get a whale 350 miles north? Apparently, on a large catamaran equipped with a decktop pool that keeps the animal half-submerged, her temperature is monitored, ice is added as necessary to keep her in a Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold, and because none of this is natural, you speed as fast as you can to your destination to prevent any kind of trauma. Pete says they made the journey in 11 hours. That's a distance that often takes six days. And at the border, the international border, he officially gave up guardianship, handed Springer over to Canadian officials, but that did not deter him from staying on board for the full trip to participate in the reunion attempt. At the halfway point, the vessel refueled, and as Pete remembers things, passengers and crew got pizza. Way up north in Johnstone Strait, awaiting Springer and the catamaran, there was a group of people waiting, hopeful supporters, they were also waiting for Springer's family to show up as expected. Everything depended on that, and nobody knew if that would actually happen. Donna Sandstrom was among those supporters waiting, and while biding her time, she met a kindred spirit. I encountered this woman, her name is Cecilia, on Saturday. We went up there just to witness the catamaran going by with Springer on it, and we were in a grocery store at Alert Bay, and there was an elder in the aisles, well, she had a beautiful vest on with an orchid design. And so I, I tapped her on the shoulder just to say how much I liked her vest. And she said, well, she was really happy. And she said, well, I'm from the killer whale clan, and we're having a big feast tonight because 
Springer's coming home. And I said, well, that's, that's incredible. I'm here because of Springer. You know, I, I worked on the project in Seattle. And she said, it's so good that whale is coming home. But I'm really worried that her grandmother won't know she's here. So I went down to the beach and I called her in the old way. And I told her, Granny, you'd better get here. Your granddaughter's coming home. I don't know what specifically she did. I didn't ask. I, I wouldn't ask, actually. But whatever she did, that's part of this story, too. I will say, Springer's pod showed up faster than anyone would have dreamed. She was returned home to Johnston Strait at like 5.30, I think, on a Saturday night, and her pod came to get her the next day, or, you know, was in the area the next day by around 2 in the afternoon. You already know where this is going. It's a tale of hail fellow whales, well met. So we're coming to that reunion part now. When Springer arrived, she was moved from the catamaran into a new holding pen. The place is called Dong Chong Bay, and that was only 18 hours before her pod appeared. The rescuers felt very optimistic as soon as their microphones detected orca chatter. I want you to hear a sample of the actual dialect, the vocalizations that typify A-Clan, which is Springer's family. The North Coast Cetacean Society has given solid support for the research and protection of dolphins, porpoise, and whales, including orcas, of course. Be sure to check out their website, bcwhales.org, where you can hear this clip from A-Clan, along with other northern resident clans and their vocalizations, all that sound gathered by hydrophone. There was three scientists from Canada on the outside of the, of the harbor saying, here comes APOD, and we'd heard APOD the night before. So we got ready to turn her loose, had to pull up a panel that was on the bottom of the net, actually pulled up the netting and that panel, got her aimed towards the gate. There's one book that describes me as walking around the pen edges like a nervous parent sending his child off to college. So I said, okay, guys, when you turn her loose, push down so she doesn't wrap her dorsal fin on the top of the gate. And they pushed down, the word went out, lower the gate, and off she went. She went right through it and right out to that pod. And of course, everybody's cheering and clapping and, and the pod's vocalizing. We couldn't hear that. They could on the uh, hydrophones. It was a tearful moment. And in fact, uh, there are a couple others. When we first took her out of the water in a stretcher in Puget Sound, I felt that way because I knew that she's going to make it through that however long we needed to keep her there. And, and then when we moved her from there to the catamaran, that was another choke-up day. So yeah, it's emotional and it still is. Here it is, 20 years. Remember back at the border when Pete was required to hand custody of Springer over to the Canadians? I mentioned that Pete was undeterred from coming on the full journey. That's exactly what he did. He wasn't going to be shut out of this story. And uh, there was actually a funny exchange, awkward maybe, where one of the Canadian officials told him, your job is done. He didn't see it that way. I don't know how much tension there was. But here's why I think Pete still needed to be there. Springer did not immediately attached to her family. She wasn't quite through with people yet. 
She may have been out of shape, and there were some scary moments. When we turned her loose up in Dongchong Harbor that day, that was, you know, could have been the end of the the whole episode. But uh, the president of Vancouver Aquarium uh, came up to me on the dock and said, thanks for your help, uh, Doc. He said, we'll take over from here. I said, what does that mean? It says means you can go to the airport and get on an airplane. <laughs> I said, well, number one, I don't have uh, transport to the airport. And uh, he said, that, that doesn't worry. He says, you're, you're through. I said, okay. And I thought, now what was this about? And it turned out that he had sent his own veterinarian home, the Vancouver Aquarium Vet home, and he didn't want to have any more to do with spending money on people looking out for this whale. So I went and got on a boat, captained and owned by uh, Captain uh, Joe Bettis, and we turned Springer loose after a night watching her swim through the water with the phosphorescence trailing after her off the tips of her flippers and dorsal. Probably one of the most awesome sights I've ever seen in nature. And I spent a lot of time outside and outdoors. So we turned her loose. We followed down Johnstone Strait to a place called the Rubbing Beach. It's where the pods will go and, and rub on the pebbles there. And Springer was seen to be trailing them. And about the time it got too dark to see, a log boom. And if you haven't seen a log boom, you can't imagine how big they can be uh, with tugboats attached, moving them down down the channel towards the mill in uh, lower Vancouver Island. So... That ended that night's tracking and monitoring, you might say. So we went and stayed in the middle of Johnstone Strait in our boat in the full moon, waiting to, if we'd hear, just happen to hear orcas. And we did. Uh, the hydrophone was over, and we heard orcas coming towards us and then passing us. Those of us that were there in that boat weren't linguists, <laughs> But there is a dialect that the APOD has that uh, Lance Barrett Leonard could say was APOD and could say that is Springer. We just figured that Springer was with that pod and had gone all the way down to the rubbing beach. Where you'll remember Pete said they congregate to scratch themselves on smooth sand and gravel. Meanwhile, back on shore, Donna Sandstrom could hardly sleep. Chances were good that it was going to work. There was every bit of a chance that it might not. And the veterinarians who worked on the project warned us that orcas can get, or any dolphins, can get sick very suddenly and just die. Uh, And no one really knows why often. It's just, uh, it can happen, they can go downhill quickly. So every day I think all of us woke up with this dread. You know, the first thing was, is she okay? Is she still there? Is she still alive? And after she went back with her family, you know, then there was the watching her over the summer. Is she going to bond with them? Every hurdle that she passed, there was another new set of challenges to worry about. When she was returned to Johnstone Strait, you know, the questions were, would she come up to boats? Would she, would she, would she have stamina to keep up with her pod? Would they accept her? Those were all real scientific questions. We turned on our ship radio about 6.30 in the morning, we heard, actually heard a guy saying, you need to help me, you need to help me, there's a killer whale under my boat. And what it turned out to be was Springer trying to be friends with this fella. We went out to look for Springer, 
Right away with our antenna, we had Jeff Foster up on the bow holding the antenna. By then, we knew that two of the transmitters had fallen off, so we had one transmitter left, and the fog came in. You couldn't see from the front to the back of the boat, let alone find an orca, unless you actually got the radio signal. We finally got the radio signal and followed that closer and closer, and we couldn't see her. We couldn't see shore, but we knew by the pedometer we were getting closer and closer to shore. And through my mind was going, oh, my God, she is uh, stranded herself again. We finally saw her about 40 feet from shore. And I guess I think that she saw us. She swam, turned towards us, swam under us. I started monitoring her breath as soon as she was close enough to see, and she was right away. Under the boat she went, swimming kind of slowly and listlessly and, and almost panting. If you could say an orca could pant, that's what she was doing. And that was a bad sign. Uh, we knew then that she'd probably followed the pod, trying to keep up out of condition from being in Puget Sound for six months, could have been in trouble, in severe trouble. She surfaced and found a small stick and carried it on the front of her front fin, her pectoral fin, and up to this little sailboat, uh, about a 30-footer, and was soliciting from them the same type of interaction so in other words, she had reverted back. Her deconditioning and conditioning was being deconditioned again. It's worth underscoring something here. The people on the boat had a big problem to solve, but from her point of view, Springer was merely pursuing the most obvious answer to her predicament. I would say she was just surviving, in a weakened state, confused. So I wouldn't exactly call her behavior backsliding. For their part, the vets on the boat determined that it was time to cut and run. You know this couldn't have been easy. It probably felt like abandoning her, but that's what they had to do. Was Springer seen again that year? Well, there's an unexpected and rather unscientific twist to this rewilding effort. Back on land, just a few hours later, Dr. Pete had a brainstorm. Coincidentally, on that day, the tribe had a... Uh as close as I can come to the to the uh, name of the tribe, which is uh, also located in Alert Bay, is Kwakakuru. The tribe uh, honored us with a longhouse ceremony the night before and then took us out to a place called Mamamamalukakula, which was an island where they had an old, very old, ancient uh, longhouse, and they had another ceremony there honoring us. And we were filled in on the spiritual nature between that tribe and the orca. Thinking about that, I walked up to the guy that had told the story, and I said, George, you know, we have a stick that she has followed everywhere and anywhere since she came to visit us in Puget Sound. I said, do you think if I gave you that stick that you guys could somehow exert influence, however you can do it, to get her 
to stay away from people and at the same time to make sure all the people you can contact will stay away from her. He said, I'm sure we can do it. So those of us that had been in the uh, ceremony took an hour-long boat trip to go get the stick. Again, this is the same stick we used in Puget Sound. It's called in psychology uh, a transition object. We brought that stick and we transferred that stick hand to hand and we left. And she was never seen again that year approaching other boats. That was Wednesday afternoon. That afternoon, she was visualized a few times. The next day, early on, she was visualized with some hum- near some humpbacks. And by afternoon of Thursday, she was reported to have been close again to the A-pod. And Friday, of course, the whole pod had gone. How abrupt is that going to feel? I mean, after all the effort, the people who had given not just months, but heart, mind, and muscle to this project, who certifies its success and when and on what basis? Those orcas just swam away. And there was no guarantee of Springer's reassimilation in the pod. And because of all of this, Donna, Pete, and everyone else were headed for a long winter. You can imagine the worry. like it was going in the right direction for Springer. Really, the worst part was that first winter, um, her pod left the Johnstone Strait area, as they usually do, and they were somewhere on the B.C. coast where they wouldn't be observed. And they came back that next year, that next July, almost to the day on the same day that she had been returned. And that was, I think, we all felt the biggest relief because it meant she had made it through the winter, she had stayed with her pod, and she was back. And that was... That was the day I think all of us relaxed. Like everybody else, Pete sensed relief too, but that did not mean he was done with his patient. So I started going back with a couple of other people that had been involved uh, every year to come up with a health assessment and news of her recovery and her progress. She finally had a calf in, uh, I think, 2013 and another one in 2017. But early on in these annual trips to spy Springer and Johnstone Strait, long before she reached sexual maturity and became a mother, they have to tell you here, people by now had started referring to Pete as Springer's grandpa, one of her more memorable appearances happened. It took Pete, his wife Carolyn, and the entire whale-watching party by surprise. It was a little bit foggy, not real foggy. We radioed Bill McKay. Um, he was out again on a trip, whale-watching trip. He responded back, she's in a pod and they're heading right towards you guys. So don't move your boat. Just sit there and she'll come up to you. So we did. We, uh, we stopped right in mid-channel and w- looked east. We did see her with two others. And what those three whales did was reported by Joseph as swimming up to the boat with Springer right under where I was standing, and my wife was right next to me, and she saw her, and of course, uh, the other two people on the boat saw her, and she came up, she kind of raised her head, looked up. When she's in that position, she's binocular. She can use both eyes. And then underwater and under the boat, heading out towards where she would head for the rest of the year, that year. 
she went by and under the boat, stopped, turned around, came back and did it again. We have all concluded that anthropomorphizing or not, we can communicate with those orcas, and particularly Springer. Springer made eye contact with them, Pete told me, and he floated the idea that maybe she was saying thank you. I can't say what was going on there, really. We humans are known to anthropomorphize animals. I suppose even a vet could be guilty of that. But the whole thing wouldn't surprise me at all. I once spoke with Brian Scarry here on Constant Wonder, and I heard from him something quite similar in the way of orca to human communication or interaction. Brian Scarry is a marine photojournalist with National Geographic. He's author of the Nat Geo book Secrets of the Whales, creator of the Disney Plus film by the same name. And in that movie, you can watch a scene as it unfolds. Brian is diving off the coast of New Zealand to see and observe and photograph a group of orcas who just happen to eat a lot of stingray. Remember, Donna has already explained to us how orca taste preferences are entirely cultural, and it just so happens that the kiwi orcas feed on stingray. So, Brian has this extraordinary encounter with an orca that from all appearances is trying to signal that he, Brian, should do something. Here comes this adult female with a stingray hanging out of her mouth. So, you know, my mind is, is just going wild on the fact that here it is. It's right before me. And as she gets closer, I'm ready to, to begin shooting. She drops the stingray. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I, I missed the moment. Uh, so the stingray falls down to the bottom of the ocean. I swim down. I kneel next to it, wondering if maybe she'll come back. And sure enough, I see her emerge, you know, in the corner of my right eye. She swims behind my back, emerges on the left side of me, and then comes to, to a position directly in front of me. She stops just a, a couple of meters away. So there's the whale, there's the stingray, and then me. And she's looking at me, looking at the ray, looking at me, looking at the ray, as if to say, well, you know, I've, I've dropped that for you. Aren't you going to eat it? And then when I don't take a bite, she just gently bends over, picks up the ray, and then turns, and another orca from her family comes in, and they begin to food share. So uh, it was extraordinary, 40-plus years of exploring the oceans, and I've, I've never had anything like that happen. Yeah, so are you shooting this all along, or are you just so stupefied sometimes you forget to take the picture? Well, yeah, so the good news in this case, I was shooting still photographs, and I did make uh, some pictures of that, which are in my book, Secrets of the Whales. You see me doing this in the documentary series on, on Disney+. Plus. But fortunately, there was a tremendous cameraman, a New Zealand cameraman named Kinna Scully, who was shooting alongside of me. I was so oblivious. I knew that Kinna was in the water, but I never even saw him. He was so good at blending into the background there that he was rolling the whole time and got this wonderful sequence on film for the show. But yeah, I was just so focused on the whale and, and and, you know, not ever having experienced quite that before, I just wanted to make sure I got the pictures that I needed and was trying to enjoy the moment as well. For years, naysayers have poo-pooed the projection of uniquely human experiences onto animals. What would the flip side be when an orca assumes a human would want to share its food? Is that cetaceomorphism? Uh, feel free to mull this over. Meanwhile, up in Canada, Springer continues to thrive. She is living back with her pod and free of human contact, and she's given birth to two calves. And we learned 
just a couple months ago that she is expecting again. Pete's totally justified in feeling deep gratification. After all, he helped save a member of an officially threatened animal population, but that one member today accounts for 1% of her clan's total population, with more on the way. It's a small number, but it represents something very big. Very few people thought it would be successful. The only orca that's ever been captured in the wild, so young and so naive, and successfully returned to the wild and is currently pregnant and her other two uh, babies are with her, Spirit and Storm and Springer. Those calves will stay with that mother for life. So that makes three of 300 orcas up in the northern resident orca population area. And we'll give Donna Sandstrom the final word now. Her adventure, you'll recall, began with a dream. And how did it end? I'll tell you, I think all of us are glad every year when she is spotted again. We'll never get over that feeling of kind of awe that she that she has been fully integrated and is thriving and that she has been able to do this and go on and have calves of her own. For me, what she has done is give me hope not just for this specific situation, but that nature can heal. That's what gives me hope, not just for orcas, but for all the problems we face. When we humans put the best interest of the thing we are trying to heal or give a chance to, when we put that first, miracles can happen. Thanks to Donna Sandstrom, founder and executive director of The Whale Trail. She's author of Orca Rescue, the true story of an orphaned orca named Springer. Thanks to Pete Schrader, a retired marine mammal veterinarian affiliated with the National Marine Mammal Foundation, and to photojournalist and film producer Brian Scarry, a National Geographic photography fellow. I'm Marcus Smith. This is Constant Wonder, a production of BYU Radio. Thanks to our friends at Constant Wonder for that story. Be sure to subscribe to their podcast for weekly episodes filled with awe. And next week, right here on Top of Mind, why does it seem so hard for Americans to step back from work? My boss at the time was on his um, third divorce and his first heart attack, and he had just turned 50. And I realized like, oh, that's my path. In the not too distant future, there was no end to the 80-hour work weeks. But there could be. In fact, some companies are moving to a four-day work week. That's four eight-hour days. You get paid the same amount of money and you get the same stuff done. You just do it more efficiently. There are studies that show that in the average office, people lose about two or three hours a day to poorly run meetings, to technology-driven distractions, to the one quick question that turns into a 10-minute conversation. So in a sense, the four-day week is already here for a lot of people. It's just buried underneath this organizational rubble and distractions. Recalibrating Our Work Lives is next week on an all-new episode of Top of Mind, right here on your podcast feed. We'll talk soon.